arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Hello, Claude. Where'd you get the midget? You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Wanna guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. Next time you lose the whole thing. Cut it off and feed it to my goldfish. Understand? Understand! I understand, Gary. I understand. In the 1974 Roman Polanski film Chinatown, screenplay by Robert Town, Jack Nicholson as J.J. Gitz learns what happens when you challenge immensely powerful people. His left nostril is summarily sliced with a sharp and rather substantial knife with the bloody promise that if he doesn't stop his investigation, he will lose the rest of his nose. Yikes. Hello everybody, Robert P. Fitton here. We start a new novel this evening. A novel involving the power of the intelligence agencies to control a narrative no matter how dishonest or deadly. The story brings in two average people, Sam and Nina, and a persistent reporter, Roy Garrison, and his estranged girlfriend. We meet Craig Grafton, a high-level, seasoned intelligence agent who is at the nexus of Garrison's investigation and the calamity. The book becomes Bogey and Bacall in a long Hitchcock chase. We'll start with Mr. Garrison in the high desert, north of Los Angeles. Green Haze by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 1 Wild goose chases require, at minimum, a wild goose. Roy Garrison chased after a lead he was sure was stuffed with wild geese and a lot of back road driving. It was one of those crazy investigative stories cast in an isolated wilderness beyond the high desert, 160 miles out of Los Angeles. Garrison had been suckered into this type of arrangement a hundred times before during his 20-year span on the dispatch. The Wednesday phone call was too bizarre to even make it into his weekly column. But this week had been a slow news week. He knew the scenario all too well. A man or woman calls up and with intense emotion in his or her voice, hints that something dreadful has taken place and that Garrison is the only person they can turn to. Why not call the authorities? The caller's answer was always quick and the same every time. Talk of a cover-up and how nobody trusted the authorities. Garrison gazed out his car window. The chiseled mountain peaks were stark against the cold sunset skies and shadows swept across the talus. As night spilled over the chilled desert floor, every twisted mesquite branch, every rock-strewn terrace and treeless slope only heightened the isolation. The town was dropped between sawtooth mountains and a range to the east. Incandescent bulbs popped on across the flat stretches like awakening fireflies pulsing on a summer's eve. The asphalt split west through the range toward San Francisco and skirted the smoother hills east to Vegas. 
somewhere on that highway, according to his source, a van containing a highly toxic organic compound had flipped over two days before. One of the vials must have opened because some guy was dead from viral endoplasmic disease, VED, a virus that ripped apart the DNA in cells. His calls to the Center for Disease Control went unanswered until yesterday, when they said not to panic. It was an isolated case, and the investigation was over. But the dumbest thing was their denying that the VN turned over outside of town. That, according to his source, was a fabrication. Tall tales were spun by those with power. Twenty years of cranking out stories pounded that into your head. Official lines were gospel. The element of truth didn't matter. It was how the damn thing played out. And that attitude spread across every government agency and every corporation. Anyone with power. This was the new millennium. Political correctness was everything. Garrison shifted his old MG at the traffic sign and slowed to 20 miles per hour. A rusted yellow sign indicated speeders would be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. That meant spending a long night in a cinderblock little jail cell staring at some little dictator who called himself the chief of police. Already he missed Los Angeles, except staying home was an invitation to telephone bouncers hounding him about his maxed out credit cards and his book he might call telling him he'd just pushed his tab to the limit. A green neon sign flashed in the twilight, leaving a blotch in his eyes as he gazed at the northern mountains. Roadside Diner the MG's little tires kicked up the parking lot dust as he pulled in, parked between two pickup trucks. Four hours on the road and his stomach had tightened into a twisted hunger pit. He stepped into the cool air and stretched his tense frame. The light inside the silver metal diner glowed against the deepening blue sky. People were jammed at the counter and in the booths, and a moving mass of gray cigarette haze hung across the place. Garrison reached back in the MG and packed his microcassette, cigarettes, and wallet into his pants pocket. He put on his faded angel's hat and strutted across the gritty parking lot. This town was probably like any other town, full of gossip, unjustified rumors, and a cast of rowdy locals seeking notoriety. He stepped back as a family exited the diner, and the father held the aluminum frame door open. Thanks. Garrison was comfortable in noisy joints like this. He sat at the end counter stool and lit a cigarette. Before he began asking questions, he ordered meatloaf, gravy, mashed potatoes, and carrots. He grabbed a folded, reread local newspaper on the scratch from Iker and scrutinized every article for a word about the overturned van. When the steamy plate arrived, he had found no reference to the van. Mrs. Lynette Campbell. The lady sounded like a damn reliable source on the phone. All those college degrees saying that she had something on her computer. She even wanted my itinerary, saying it was critical. I talked with her before I saw Richard in San Luis Obispo. Well, where the hell is the van story, Mrs. Lynette Campbell? More coffee, sir? The pink-uniformed waitress held a glass pot of swishing dark coffee. Garrison nodded his head. She poured and looked at his hat before throwing a couple of sealed cream containers on the counter. Angels, you from L.A.? Yeah, it depends. Oh, I left town. I'm robbery. She wasn't sure whether he was serious as she smiled, and she quickly backed away. 
How to make friends and influence people, Roy. Now you gotta stop the bullshit with strangers. He went back to the paper, chewed up his food like a high-speed grinding machine, but found nothing until he came to the obit page. Then he sipped the bitter coffee, added another cream and sugar, and ran his finger over the death notice of a guy named Grover Moses. Died from a sudden viral onslaught. Garrison tore around the write-up and raised his brows before stuffing the paper in his shirt pocket. The waitress returned but kept her distance as she rattled off the dessert selection. Garrison ordered a tapioca pudding with whipped nuts and cream. He nixed any thoughts about asking her for directions to the Campbell place. The old man next to him, few days beard growth, now stubble on his pasty face, squinted. Then he just stared. Excuse me, I'm looking for the uh, Campbell place. I have an address, uh, Raleigh Road West. The old man shook his head. Yeah, cross town, left at the 76 station. About a mile in. Garrison held the coffee cup. You hear anything about a van overturning out here the other night? Rumors. Rumors. Yeah? Nobody's seen no van except Grover. Nobody except Grover. All right, here you go, Roy. This is it. This is the big story that's going to bail you out. Big Bad Grover saw the van, and now Big Bad Grover has died of some mysterious sudden... Grover's dead. Garrison nodded as the waitress brought a green bowl full of tapioca and whipped cream. There was a single cherry on top, pierced with a toothpick. He pushed his cold spoon into the whipped cream and tasted the cherry sweetness first. Grover Moses, right? You gotta be a reporter. Yep, you gotta. Garrison laughed as he popped the cherry between his teeth. It was both sweet and bitter. Yeah, yeah, it was Grover Moses, and he died of the plague, right? Hey, I ain't no scientist. He pushed his plate forward and pulled out a wrinkled $5 bill and placed it under the corner. Then he stood and looked down at Garrison and pointed. This here's a mighty small town, mister. If a van tipped over, there damn well would have been somebody who saw it. Garrison finished the tapioca but watched the guy all the way out to his truck under the glowing neon sign. That old man had just made the most valid point he had heard thus far. With all the open space and the tiny town population, why did only Grover Moses see that van? He wiped his face with a paper napkin. Was this a fluke or was he onto something up in this nowhere little town? Chapter 2 The old man's directions were perfect. Garrison turned at the illuminated orange and blue 76 sign and headed along a narrow half-paved road to the north. No streetlights were out here, but his headlights bounced across the rock valley floor ahead. The weathered board fences led directly to a long, metal cross-cut gate, which had to be opened manually. The smooth rock and wood post house was built on two levels up the hill. There were a number of expensive cars parked near the barn out front. Garrison cut the motor and got out quickly. The air was cold and silent as he crossed the barnyard to the wide farmer's porch protruding from the stone facade. A single porch light was left burning. He had told these people he might go to his brother's San Luis Obispo house, but Richard was busy at his restaurant. Mrs. Campbell was surprised when he called two hours ago and said he was popping in. Discrepancies always came out when people were caught off guard. This is one story that Hobson would demand that he get right. 
He thought about returning to the car for his jacket, but opted to cross the porch planks to the wood door. The quietness bothered him as he looked back toward the MG in the barn. He turned and lifted the heavy eagle brass knocker and banged the tarnished striking plate several times. Half a minute later, a thin man in a red plaid shirt answered the door. He had a kind face, big brown eyes, and a look of recognition. You Garrison? I am he. Ed Campbell. Come on in. My wife's been waiting for you. We thought you were going to San Luis Obispo first. Garrison had to think as he stepped onto the glossy, varnished log foyer whether this was the beginning of an important story or just another excursion into a small town with large imaginations. The place smelled like cedar chips. Nice house you have here, Mr. Campbell. What do you do? Well, I work for the railroad. My wife is a lawyer here in town. Handles all the hard luck cases, you might say. Mrs. Campbell appeared in the naughty pine dining room to the left. She was a tall woman with perm brown hair, a denim shirt and jeans, and wore a silver necklace. Garrison figured she was 40, younger than Campbell, and still attractive. She had a soothing smile as she walked around a long family-style pine table. Garrison felt as if he should take off his cap. She extended her thin hand and her green eyes became intense. Mr. Garrison, I thought you would be in San Luis Obispo while my brother got tied up. Then we'll give him another copy, said Ed as she nodded. Copy of what? No, it's not important now. See, time is of the essence. I haven't called you up here away from your job and your home because of some frivolous accusation. Well, you got me off the hook from my creditors. What was that? she asked. Nothing, nothing, just a personal thing. Most of the press people I've called have written me off as some prankster, a left-wing nut lawyer who defends the dregs of society. Credibility problem. Maybe. She motioned him into the dining room. A teenage boy with headphones and a dangling music player asked her something and then left. Garrison handed her his card, containing all his relevant phone numbers. She looked down at the numbers and nodded. They sat down in the dimly lit room. On the wall was a huge map of the area and a large green arrow pointing to an area outside of town. We have a problem, Mr. Garrison. A man died of viral endoplasmic disease. We've had some people from the CDC fly in from Georgia. Yeah, I talked to them. Cover up, said Campbell. You think so? Mrs. Campbell half closed her eyes and pushed her thin lips together. This woman looked as if she was under pressure. She moved her head slowly from side to side and veered over to the map, then extended her index finger to the arrow. There was a van that tipped over right there. 2.30 a.m. April 15th. The one witness who saw it is dead. Garrison raised his thick brows. Yeah, I read that. He died of viral endoplasmic disease. You're talking about Grover, right? Yes, Grover Moses. The CDC said there was nothing to suggest that VED was out here. Somebody's pressuring him, said Ed. Garrison moved the chair back, stood and walked over to the map. The arrow pointed to a flat area with no houses or buildings. He aligned his thumb and index finger to the scale of miles and then set them on the map. This spot was six and a half miles out of town. Okay, I'm game. Prove this thing to me. You're a lawyer. She looked at her husband. Up close, the tension was visible across her pudgy cheeks. 
Moses saw the overturned truck while he was coming back from work. There's a borax facility 16 miles up the highway. He left work at 2 a.m. He spotted the van and got out. There was a man standing there with an AK-47 who warned him very calmly to stay away. He used the words, It's too late for me. Don't you get it? Garrison was not sure that Moses had told her the truth. Then what happened to the van, Mrs. Campbell? Her eyes opened and her hands moved around as she spoke. Garrison noticed she was breathing rapidly. Grover naturally complied. He went to his car and drove on. But as he passed that overturned truck, he noticed something in the rearview mirror. What? Military vehicles. Two of them. So he stops. He sees these guys dressed in white plastic leap out of the trucks. They shoot the first guy with the AK-47 and load his body on the truck. Then they spray something and surround the whole thing with a massive plastic tent. Garrison was beginning to doubt the story. Her shaking hands and twitchy right eye made him suspicious. He sat down at the table again as she continued. Then they begin taking the wrapped canisters out of the plastic tent and brought them inside the first truck. Campbell leaned toward Garrison and tapped his arm. This is an incredible thing. Garrison nodded and looked back at Mrs. Campbell. Then they spray the tarp in the van again with some kind of aerosol. Grover wasn't sure. He told me they removed the tarp and put it in the truck. The second man moved the van inside. They close up the tractor trailer and leave the way they came. What do you think of that, Mr. Garrison? Well, I don't know what the hell to think. If the CDC came here and went out there, yes, they would find nothing as far as the VED. But I've had the charred remains tested. There are traces of morotoxin, a highly deadly chemical. Then tell them. They want disease. They don't want chemicals. Garrison sat again, propping his elbows on the pine table. He tightened the crow's feet around his eyes and pushed his bottom lip into his teeth. But he died of VED, correct? Mrs. Campbell, her presentation over, sat down. She nodded her head and leaned back in the creaky chair and exhaled. You don't understand, Mr. Garrison. We have other proof that can undermine everything the CDC is saying. I understand, but you don't believe me, do you? Well, it sounds plausible, but what I require is proof. You have one dead witness, and secondly, why would someone be carrying VED along the highway? Well, obviously, it was the military. Moses saw the military trucks, they cleaned it up, and they got out. She stood and pushed her fingers back through her curly hair. Listen, that's the story. If you don't want to look into it, then don't. I've said my piece. I didn't say I didn't want to look into it, Mrs. Campbell. I just said I need the proof. I can't go writing something on a tangent without proof. Yes, I know. She looked at her husband, and then he turned to Garrison. Mr. Garrison, I'm a railroad man. I've got more than ten years, and I collect my pension. I'm the last guy who wants to open this can of worms. Garrison wanted a cigarette. Mrs. Campbell looked Garrison in the eye. What I've accumulated is on my computer. It's significant enough to get you going in the right direction. Let me get my recorder, said Garrison. Mrs. Campbell's face was tense. 
Okay, you get your recorder, Mr. Garrison. I thought you had a computer with you. Well, back in my office, I do. He looked at them standing before a huge rock fireplace before he returned to the car. I intend to go forward with this story if I have proof, but... But, asked Mrs. Campbell, but I have to be sure of what I'm doing. A van tips over, maybe a military van. The ED is spread in the desert near a town. Somebody must be going to elaborate lengths to cover this up, if it's true. Mrs. Campbell nodded. Oh, I know that very well. All right, let me get my recorder. Just don't expect things to be printed in my column until I'm damn sure of what I'm doing. Mr. Garrison, you'll have a copy. I'll be right back. Chapter 3 He didn't even hear the sound of peepers or a barking dog as he stepped onto the farmer's porch. He crossed the yard to his car, parked adjacent to the barn, and he opened the door. For a moment he sat, staring at the red metal barn facade, and grasped his recorder. Well, Roy, this is getting very interesting. You're definitely getting sucked into it. This woman also has information on her PC. You need to get a copy of what's on that PC with your own notes. This story might be your big break, buddy. The whole world would want to know if these bastards from the military were spilling VED onto the highway. He held his recorder near his mouth and clicked the record button. The stillness of the night clashed with the developing story. Okay, these are the notes recorded at the Campbell House April 9th. The woman claims that one man, Grover Moses, died from VED contracted from an overturned van outside of town. She says that the military cleaned up the mess, killed a soldier, and drove the whole thing away in a huge tractor-trailer. All military vehicles. Garrison wondered what else she would add. This woman is a lawyer, probably left-wing. Goody two-shoes. A bright flash cut the darkness and halted his dictation. The light was followed by an intense rumble. The car rolled and was lifted. Garrison's bones were shaken as the rear window was pulverized by a raft of debris. He was thrown to the floor and dropped the recorder as a secondary blast rocked the car. He looked upward. The barn's red aluminum sheets were covered with an intense wavy orange light. After another sharp blast, he ducked down again and waited for the explosions to end. He tried not to think of the Campbells inside the house. Covering his head as the minutes passed, he heard a fire crackling. He held the passenger door handle and slowly pulled himself up over the side window. Flames flickered brightly over the dirt and along the barn. Through the open rear window, heat pushed through like a desert breeze at midday. A central fire emanated from the few remaining glowing and charged vertical timbers against the night sky. Sparks snapped and spun and rose in huge steam bursts into the darkness. Garrison sat up and grasped the driver's side handle. He moved the lever and then kicked it open with his heel. He backed out of the car and placed his feet securely on the ground. He held the open window and stared aimlessly at the carnage. Shielding his eyes with both hands, he took a few steps toward the heat. Even the farmer's porch was obliterated. Then he sprinted away from the inferno. Sirens sounded back toward the main road and bright blue and red lights darted across the fields. The headlights approached near the Campbell's entrance road and police cruisers moved rapidly through the gate and skidded into the yard. 
All the doors popped in unison and a slew of cops descended upon him. One of them shouted as he reached Garrison, Who the hell are you? Name's Roy Garrison. They pinned him against the car and lifted his wallet from his pants pocket. They pounded against his ribs and rifled his front pockets. Then the other cops ran into the barnyard and trashed the MG. Hey, what are you doing? From behind, he heard a countrified voice. Why don't you shut up? He's a reporter from the Los Angeles Dispatch. They twisted him around. The fire's brightness hurt his eyes as two of the cops pushed his wrists against the cruiser roof. You tell us what you were doing out here, Roy Garrison, from 1454 La Siena, Los Angeles, California. Story. The blonde guy, inches from his face, had putrid breath and constantly grit his yellow teeth. His wild blue eyes reflected in the blaze. Then he pushed the butt end of his hand into Garrison's chin, uncomfortably folding back the beard stubble. You blew up that house, didn't you, Garrison? No. Run this moron on the computer. A second cop took Garrison's wallet back to another cruiser. Garrison was too frightened to say anything. Fire trucks and an ambulance raced up the highway now and swung onto the dirt drive. Okay, you tell us what happened out here, Garrison. It's a story about the VED. I was inside and, and you just happened to be outside when the whole place went up. Garrison nodded. The fire trucks strained as they moved across the lane, stirring up the dust around the headlights. The cops who interrogated him spoke with two other plainclothes guys. The truck stopped a few feet away. Firemen leaped off the running boards and pulled long black hoses and equipment from the truck. Why were you outside, Garrison? My recorder. I went to get my recorder. The cop took two giant steps toward him and held his shoulders. Damn it, I knew these people. You're telling me you just happened to be outside here. Come on, Garrison, I'm not a blithering idiot. Garrison tightened his brow. The fireman pointed the first metal hose nozzle and a blast of water sputtered and then arced into the night sky. Great water gushes landed on what was left of the Campbell Ranch. Listen, I was dictating into my recorder. An older cop walking from the MG held up the recorder. It's right, Ronnie, it's still running. Ronnie looked at Garrison. He crossed the yard and said something to the cop and the cruiser and then moved over to one of the firemen. The continuous pumping engines and the steady water stream spewed over the flames and drowned out the animated conversation. He pointed at Garrison. The other cops loosened their grip on Garrison but blocked any movement. Garrison feared this story was beyond him now. Somebody blew up the Campbell's house and he had narrowly escaped death. Now all he could smell was the dank, charred wood hissing in the desert air and the diminished flames still lighting the area. Other cars arrived. The police already had backup cruises and had set up a checkpoint. A few minutes later, Ronnie returned and brought Garrison toward the cruiser. Both men got in behind the cage screen. Ronnie's face was contorted as he thought and balanced his forearms on his propped knees. You didn't have anything to do with this, did you, Garrison? As a reporter, I'd ask the question, what if I did? Hey, don't be a smartass. You ain't out of this by a long shot. There's FBI personnel en route in choppers out of San Francisco. Nobody's taking this lightly. I understand. So you came out here for your recorder and then the place blew up? Yes, sir. Okay, you're working on this VED thing. I think Grover's story was bogus. Grover was a guy who always saw a conspiracy. 
Somebody might want this story squelched. You know something we don't, Garrison? There are all kinds of rumors floating around this town, most of which came from Grover Moses. Vian's overturning with vials of VED? What, did Lynette tell you about that? They were trying to elaborate on this story. She had more information. That's why I was getting my recorder. But it doesn't mean jack shit now, does it? Ronnie nodded. He reached in his pocket and pulled out a cigarette pack and shook it so three or four fresh cigarettes popped toward Garrison. Garrison pinched the cigarette and placed it in his mouth. Ronnie flicked the lighter, illuminating the cruiser for a few seconds, and steered the flame toward Garrison's cigarette. He lit his own filter tip, then blew the smoke from his mouth. Something is wrong. Have you considered somebody was after you? Yeah, I considered it. This is a small town, Garrison. I'm just some local cop who's lived up here all his life. But if I were you, I'd be mighty scared. Sometimes you gotta back off. It ain't worth it. Power will crush you, man. You know anybody in power? Anybody who wants to kill you? Garrison paused and smiled. My ex-girlfriend. Ronnie grinned through the cigarette in his teeth. He raised his brow. Yeah, well, women can be something else. Yeah, a woman, woman can, can be something else. But not Loretta. He stroked his chin and gazed toward the fire. Boy, did I blow that one. This stupid cop is just like me. It's way in over his head. Somebody just murdered that Campbell woman, her husband, and her son. And you'd be in that rubble right now, Roy, if you hadn't gone back to your car. What the hell is going on here? Ronnie's last question echoed in his head. Who the hell was behind this? And why did they want this story stopped? He knew he should phone this back to Hobson, but why would his boss run a story about some house exploding in a remote desert town? Who would read it? And he had nothing to expand the story. He savored the cigarette, but was mesmerized by the dying flames ahead. Ronnie said nothing more and opened the cruiser door a few minutes later. Garrison sat in the rear seat under the watchful gaze of two younger cops. The fire was waning now, the night darkness returning, but he had no answers. Chapter 4 They took Garrison's tape but gave him back the recorder. He quickly repeated his previous thoughts on a new tape, but added a summary of the explosion in his subsequent questioning. He feared these facts would have very little intrinsic value right now, nor is it likely these recordings would ever be used in any article without more proof. And the Campbell's computer data was now melted down to a charcoal glob somewhere in the debris. It was past midnight and he was standing with Ronnie and the fire captain when he heard helicopters in the sky. Over the mountains, a single spotlight shone across the desert as green and red lights blinked behind. The big boys were arriving, yet he still had no answers. Even before the helicopters landed, he heard Ronnie talking about the FBI sending out some agent named Keaton. Garrison, raising his hand to the bright spotlights, waited till the choppers descended. F Bruce Keaton, 15 years ago, I knew Keaton in L.A. If they were talking about the same Keaton, all those late nights covering the sleaziest street stories... We helped each other with informants, leads, and listened to our mutual problems. It's a different world back then, Brucey boy. I went to the dispatch and you went to Chicago. And now you're in San Francisco and I'm 158000 in debt and almost dead in that blast over there. The chopper doors opened and Ronnie pointed to a man with sandy dry hair and a pug nose. The gray eyes and tight face made his old friend look like a bantamweight in contention. In 15 years, Keaton had weathered it well. 
Ronnie straightened his tie and moved across the yard to meet Keaton. Garrison's stomach was knotted. He couldn't bluff his way through any interrogation with a professional like Keaton. As Keaton and his agent spread across the yard, Garrison held his recorder. You wouldn't be here, Bruce, if it wasn't something damned important. You know something. Ronnie pointed at Garrison as he walked Keaton toward the cruiser. Keaton stopped, leaned forward for a moment, and smiled. Then he stepped ahead of Ronnie and extended his hand. It was a firm, callous grip. Bruce. How are you, Roy? Damn good to see you, I think. He looked over at the demolished house. Alive. It's been a long time. Alive is correct, Bruce. Keaton again studied the smoldering ruins. You're one lucky son of a bitch, Roy. Always was. Keaton smiled. He had crooked little teeth. Yep, you always were. These people have been murdered, Bruce. We'll have to reserve judgment on that. I have a gut feeling about this one. Garrison grinned when he saw Keaton mouthing the words. Well, I do. Let's talk. Coffee's coming. I'll make sure yours is black. You remembered. I'm touched. I never forget a phone number or the way somebody likes their coffee. How's Loretta? Garrison winced, not expecting that question. He shook his head. We broke up uh, almost five years ago. She moved out of my condo. Sorry, Roy. I didn't know. He looked his friend over. Keaton's hair had become gray, but his skin had that same weathered look. Coffee did arrive a few minutes later, probably brought from the diner in town. Keaton spent the next 15 minutes talking over old street cases and didn't even mention the explosion. Now I understand you have your own weekly column. All those nights at Rosina's paid off, Roy. We shut down that place enough times. It's a convenience store now. Come on. Hey, I've toned down my late night hours. And here you are. Yeah, here I am, Bruce. And what the hell do I tell you, old buddy? What the hell do you know? Damn this whole thing. There are forces all around us. You know that, Bruce. I was briefed on the radio by the local cops, Roy. What happened? Did this lady call you? Garrison explained how Mrs. Campbell regularly read his column reprinted in the local paper and thought he would have the means to look into whatever she perceived as a massive cover-up. He turned on his recorder. Keaton smiled and he went through everything, sometimes waiting while Keaton conducted his investigation. It was after two and he was half asleep in the cruiser's rear seat when the car started. One of the younger cops was behind the wheel as Keaton climbed into the front seat and the rear door closed. Keaton asked nothing more about the blast or the VED as he headed back toward town. He was talking about football with the young cop. Garrison had opinions but remained silent. He looked out the window across the desert and waited for Keaton to begin the grilling again. They pulled into the diner, the only place still open at this early hour. Keaton brought Garrison, Garrison up to lit the a cigarette alone and while another the cop coffee. waited in the car. He ordered a piece of Boston cream pie and a cup of coffee for himself. After some small talk, Keaton ate the pie and wiped his lips. His serious gray eyes and his sustained silence had Garrison uneasy. Roy, I checked out the reports I received from the local cops. The overturned van, 
We've been aware of this thing for a few weeks. The CDC assured me it was doubtful if the event ever took place. I was about to contact Lynette Campbell myself. What about the military vehicles or the moratoxin? Bogus. He shook his head and gulped the coffee. Grover Moses was just plain wrong. Garrison leaned closer and kept his billowing cigarette smoke away from Keaton. Mrs. Campbell had the material tested. There was more toxin in the soil. Oh, come on. I know this lady's background. She's a kook lawyer, Roy. You know better than that. I don't find any evidence that would indicate a van flipping out here. I read the CDC report. Either someone's running a classified operation, which I doubt, or there was no van. Option two, bingo, classified operation. Keaton pushed his empty cup and saucer down the counter. No, no, no. My people have checked out with all the intelligence agencies. They'd tell us if they were doing something like this. Would they? We're talking about BED being transported on a public road and turning over on a public road and killing some guy. They're not going to tell you piddle. Listen, Roy, you and I go back a long way, and I know how you value your sources. Where did they get this information? Moses himself, through Campbell. Keaton nodded and crossed his arms as he rotated on the stool. I think this van thing was just conjecture on Moses' part. As if his pending death needed justification. Well, that's bullshit. What is VED doing in this hick little town? These top-level guys could do their song and dance and you wouldn't even know it. Obviously, you'll get back to your paper. Can I? Wait until the fire marshal and my people tell us exactly what happened. Roy, I would prefer that you print nothing. Just drop this. Keaton placed his hand over his eyes as he slowly shook his head. Then hold off. Garrison snuffed out his cigarette and the glass ashtray. Then he spoke slowly and worded his answer precisely. I think this thing is of great importance. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I sure as hell don't want to drop it. Roy, damn you! Bruce, you know something else you're not telling me. No, I know as much as you do. Just hold off. Keaton sipped on the coffee and squinted. He looked as if he were going to lose his temper. Well, my car is wrecked. I'm supposed to be at my brother's in San Luis Obispo. I'm 158000 in the hole. I know that. Garrison looked at his friend. You had me checked out, did you, old friend? I had to. Chorus, right. Why does this have to be Keaton out here? Anyone else I could tell to screw off? All right, I'll wait. But I'll tell you, I have a gut feeling about all of this, Bruce. About this. So do I. So do I. He put his hand on Garrison's shoulder. You're doing the right thing, Roy. After some small talk, Keaton ate the pie and wiped his lips. His serious gray eyes and his sustained silence had Garrison uneasy. Roy, I checked out the reports I received from the local cops. The overturned van? We've been aware of this thing for a few weeks. The CDC assured me it was doubtful if the event ever took place. I was about to contact Lynette Campbell myself. 
What about the military vehicles or the morotoxin? Bogus. He shook his head and gulped the coffee. Grover Moses was just plain wrong. Garrison leaned closer and kept his billowing cigarette smoke away from Keaton. Mrs. Campbell had the material tested. There was more toxin in the soil. Oh, come on. I know this lady's background. She's a kook lawyer, Roy. You know better than that. I don't find any evidence that would indicate a van flipping out here. I read the CDC report. Either someone's running a classified operation, which I doubt, or there was no van. Option two, bingo, classified operation. Keaton pushed his empty cup and saucer down the counter. No, no, no. My people have checked out with all the intelligence agencies. They'd tell us if they were doing something like this. Would they? We're talking about D.E.D. being transported on a public road and turning over on a public road and killing some guy. They're not going to tell you piddle. Listen, Roy, you and I go back a long way, and I know how you value your sources. Where did they get this information? Moses himself, through Campbell. Keaton nodded and crossed his arms as he rotated on the stool. I think this van thing was just conjecture on Moses' part. As if his pending death needed justification. Well, that's bullshit. What is VED doing in this hick little town? These top-level guys could do their song and dance and you wouldn't even know it. Obviously, you'll get back to your paper. Can I? Wait until the fire marshal and my people tell us exactly what happened. Roy, I would prefer that you print nothing. Just drop this. Keaton placed his hand over his eyes as he slowly shook his head. Then hold off. Garrison snuffed out his cigarette and the glass ashtray. Then he spoke slowly and worded his answer precisely. I think this thing is of great importance. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I sure as hell don't want to drop it. Roy, damn you! Bruce, you know something else you're not telling me. No, I know as much as you do. Just hold off. Keaton sipped on the coffee and squinted. He looked as if he were going to lose his temper. Well, my car is wrecked. I'm supposed to be at my brother's in San Luis Obispo. I'm 158000 in the hole. I know that. Garrison looked at his friend. You had me checked out, did you, old friend? I had to. Chorus, right. Why does this have to be Keaton out here? Anyone else I could tell to screw off? All right, I'll wait, but I'll tell you I have a gut feeling about all of this, Bruce. About this, so do I, so do I. He put his hand on Garrison's shoulder. You're doing the right thing, Roy. Lights blinked behind. The big boys were arriving, yet he still had no answers. Even before the helicopters landed, he heard Ronnie talking about the FBI sending out some agent named Keaton. Garrison, raising his hand to the bright spotlights, waited till the choppers descended. Bruce Keaton, 15 years ago, I knew Keaton in L.A. If they were talking about the same Keaton, all those late nights covering the sleaziest street stories, we helped each other with informants, leads, and listened to our mutual problems. It's a different world back then, Brucey boy. I went to the dispatch and you went to Chicago. And now you're in San Francisco and I'm 158000 in debt. 
and almost dead in that blast over there. The chopper door is opened and Ronnie pointed to a ruddy little man with sandy dry hair and a pug nose. The gray eyes and tight face made his old friend look like a bantamweight in contention. In 15 years, Keaton had weathered it well. Ronnie straightened his tie and moved across the yard to meet Keaton. Garrison's stomach was knotted. He couldn't bluff his way through any interrogation with a professional like Keaton. As Keaton and his agents spread across the yard, Garrison held his recorder. You wouldn't be here, Bruce, if it wasn't something damned important. You know something. Ronnie pointed at Garrison as he walked Keaton toward the cruiser. Keaton stopped, leaned forward for a moment, and smiled. Then he stepped ahead of Ronnie and extended his hand. It was a firm, callous grip. Well, what goes around comes around. Bruce. How are you, Roy? Damn good to see you, I think. He looked over at the demolished house. Alive. It's been a long time. Alive is correct, Bruce. Keaton again studied the smoldering ruins. You're one lucky son of a bitch, Roy. Always was. Keaton smiled. He had crooked little teeth. Yep, you always were. These people have been murdered, Bruce. We'll have to reserve judgment on that. I have a gut feeling about this one. Garrison grinned when he saw Keaton mouthing the words. Well, I do. Let's talk. Coffee's coming. I'll make sure yours is black. You remembered. I'm touched. I never forget a phone number or the way somebody likes their coffee. How's Loretta? Garrison winced, not expecting that question. He shook his head. We broke up uh, almost five years ago. She moved out of my condo. Sorry, Roy. I didn't know. He looked his friend over. Keaton's hair had become gray, but his skin had that same weathered look. Coffee did arrive a few minutes later, probably brought from the diner in town. Keaton spent the next 15 minutes talking over old street cases and didn't even mention the explosion. Now I understand you have your own weekly column. All those nights at Rosina's paid off, Roy. We shut down that place enough times. It's a convenience store now. Come on. Hey, I've toned down my late night hours. And here you are. Yeah, here I am, Bruce. And what the hell do I tell you, old buddy? What the hell do you know? Damn this whole thing. There are forces all around us. You know that, Bruce. I was briefed on the radio by the local cops, Roy. What happened? Did this lady call you? Garrison explained how Mrs. Campbell regularly read his column reprinted in the local paper and thought he would have the means to look into whatever she perceived as a massive cover-up. He turned on his recorder, Keaton smiled, and he went through everything, sometimes waiting while Keaton conducted his investigation. It was after two, and he was half asleep in the cruiser's rear seat when the car started. One of the younger cops was behind the wheel as Keaton climbed into the front seat and the rear door closed. Keaton asked nothing more about the blast of the VED as he headed back toward town. He was talking about football with the young cop. Garrison had opinions, but remained silent. He looked out the window across the desert and waited for Keaton to begin the grilling again. They pulled into the diner, the only place still open at this early hour. Keaton brought Garrison up to the counter alone while the cop waited in the car. 
He ordered a piece of Boston cream pie and a cup of coffee for himself. Garrison lit a cigarette and got another black coffee. After some small talk, Keaton ate the pie and wiped his lips. His serious gray eyes and his sustained silence had Garrison uneasy. Roy, I checked out the reports I received from the local cops. The overturned van. Which reports? The overturned van? We've been aware of this thing for a few weeks. The CDC assured me it was doubtful if the event ever took place. I was about to contact Lynette Campbell myself. What about the military vehicles or the Moritoxin? Bogus. He shook his head and gulped the coffee. Grover Moses was just plain wrong. Garrison leaned closer and kept his billowing cigarette smoke away from Keaton. Mrs. Campbell had the material tested. There was more toxin in the soil. Oh, come on. I know this lady's background. She's a kook lawyer, Roy. You know better than that. I don't find any evidence that would indicate a van flipping out here. I read the CDC report. Either someone's running a classified operation, which I doubt, or there was no van. Option two, bingo, classified operation. Keaton pushed his empty cup and saucer down the counter. No, no, no. My people have checked out with all the intelligence agencies. They'd tell us if they were doing something like this. Would they? We're talking about BED being transported on a public road and turning over on a public road and killing some guy. They're not going to tell you piddle. Listen, Roy, you and I go back a long way, and I know how you value your sources. Where did they get this information? Moses himself, through Campbell. Keaton nodded and crossed his arms as he rotated on the stool. I think this van thing was just conjecture on Moses' part. As if his pending death needed justification. Well, that's bullshit. What is VED doing in this hick little town? These top-level guys could do their song and dance and you wouldn't even know it. Obviously, you'll get back to your paper. Can I? Wait until the fire marshal and my people tell us exactly what happened. Roy, I would prefer that you print nothing. Just drop this. Keaton placed his hand over his eyes as he slowly shook his head. Then hold off. Garrison snuffed out his cigarette and the glass ashtray. Then he spoke slowly and worded his answer precisely. I think this thing is of great importance. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I sure as hell don't want to drop it. Roy, damn you! Bruce, you know something else you're not telling me. No, I know as much as you do. Just hold off. Keaton sipped on the coffee and squinted. He looked as if he were going to lose his temper. Well, my car is wrecked. I'm supposed to be at my brother's in San Luis Obispo. I'm 158000 in the hole. I know that. Garrison looked at his friend. You had me checked out, did you, old friend? I had to. Chorus, right. Why does this have to be Keaton out here? Anyone else I could tell to screw off? All right, I'll wait. But I'll tell you, I have a gut feeling about all of this, Bruce. About this. So do I. So do I. He put his hand on Garrison's shoulder. You're doing the right thing, Roy. 
Chapter 5 Well-defined steel-blue clouds hovered in the dawn skies above the silhouetted peaks, and the desert floor brightened in the early morning light. A single shiny red fire truck remained on the Campbell property. The ranch house fire was long since extinguished, but the sooty smell remained in the cooler air. Garrison had not slept. A fresh unlit cigarette hung in his mouth as he swigged another cup of coffee around 5.30 and then rubbed his stinging dry eyes. Hey, Roy, they have something. Garrison looked up and nodded. Then he finally lit his cigarette, put on his angel's cap, and poured the coffee into the sand before he stepped from the car. The fire marshal had just brought his men back to a long maroon sedan. Keaton, his tie loosened, and some of the FBI guys were standing around the smoldering rubble. A small blue flame spewed upward like a blowtorch from where the porch stood less than 12 hours ago. Keaton waved Garrison over. Gas line, Roy. Ruptured. Garrison chucked the cigarette and ground it into the sand. He squatted next to the persistent thin blue flame. He stroked his chin and then looked up at the FBI agent. Keaton's face was placid, but Garrison knew he was thinking about the odd coincidence of a gas line blowing up just as the Campbells were discussing the VED. But Keaton said nothing as Garrison slouched. He tried not to think about Ed Campbell, his attractive wife and teenage boy, and the charred remains of the ranch house. I won't pursue this until I get the word. Or until I feel like I'm getting screwed. And you all know that, Keaton. Then the story goes to Hobson. It's printed in the dispatch. What the hell is going on up here? Keaton walked around his men and shook Garrison's hand. I appreciate that, and I'll be getting back to you, Roy. We have to explore more channels on this. He pulled Garrison aside. We have to explore more channels on this. I'm going to call in the gas company. Good move, but what do you think right now? I don't know. There's enough information, and frankly, I feel like I'm getting the runaround. If I can't get any information, then I'll have to drop it. Oh, you sound like a reporter, Keaton. Keaton smiled. Insulting me will only get you in trouble. Who would try and block you? That, my old buddy, is the crux of this thing. Chapter 6 John counted 17 rings before he picked up the payphone. He faced the highway as a wide tractor trailer barreled by the phone booth and back toward the mountains. Craig Grafton's cool voice finally answered. Grafton, what do you have up there, John? I have distressing news, Craig. Garrison was in his car when the police went up there. He's still alive. Even this news didn't seem to unnerve Grafton. Okay, what was his demeanor? Well, he, he looked scared. Another car whizzed by the phone booth and disappeared into the night. Bruce Keaton's been questioning him. They went into town and then they came back. Good man, Bruce Keaton. What did, uh, what did Garrison tell him? Nothing of value. He just came up here because of the Lynette Campbell story about the van overturning. Yeah, that's correct. Thought he was in the house when I blew the gas line. I'm sorry, Craig. That's past, John. I only want to know what we're going to do now. Is there anything mentioned about something called green haze? Those words were not mentioned. I'm sure of it. I see. Grafton spoke with others in the background. Options were discussed. Where is uh, Garrison now? Well, he's still out at the ranch. You want me to kill him? 
Grafton paused and his voice remained calm. Yes. Then just shadow Garrison. I don't think that's wise. I didn't ask for an option, said Grafton. If we eliminate Garrison, the consensus here is that his paper will pursue it because of the explosion. There is too much opportunity to draw unwarranted conclusions. If he becomes a liability, John, oh, he'll be taken care of. Let's just watch him and see if we can get any further information about who knows what he's doing. Understood. I'll check in tomorrow. No, I'll be out of town tomorrow. Check in with Cam Pritchard when you have something. He'll handle this now. Okay. One final thing. Yes. Lake Shar is blue in the summer. Lake Shar? That's all. Good luck, John. John looked away from the phone and to the Campbell Ranch three miles to the south. Rather than follow Garrison, it would have been easier just to kill him. Chapter 7. St. Augustine, Florida, April 15th. Sam kissed Nina one more time and gazed into her wild blue eyes. She looked like a bunny when she smiled and her wispy blonde hair surrounded her wide face and tan shoulders. A week in the sun had darkened her long body but left silky skin beyond the bikini lines. You, Mr. Peters, are tempting me again. Sam kissed her. That's the idea. The phone rang and he closed his eyes. Then he reached for the end table phone and pulled up the receiver, but he stayed on top of Nina. Someone on the other end was telling him they were supposed to check out tomorrow morning. He set down the phone and then left it off the hook. Who was it, Sam? Sam thrust his body forward and enveloped his mouth tightly around her moist lips. One more time before supper, and he could tell she wanted him. He didn't want to miss getting every moment of pleasure before the drive back to Iowa. He dressed in his shorts and tank top. Nina wanted to lounge in bed before supper, but he needed to photograph the intense sunshine through the dark and blue clouds to the west. His goal was to match his photo with the old postcard of the bridge extending back to St. Augustine. He grabbed his cameras and several rolls of film. I'd like to shoot you in this light, Nina. Why don't you tag along? And ruin the postcard shot? She smiled a gentle smile. You go ahead. Get some good shots. He walked around the bed and kissed her forehead. She slowly ran her fingers along his beard and nodded. We need it this time. You mean away from the baby? Well, I miss Jason. Well, you talk to him every day. Although at age one, I don't know if he was taking any incoming calls. He understands. Again, she smiled. She looked so much more rested than a week ago when they arrived out of that blinding Tennessee snowstorm. Think you can still go back to teaching school? She pulled the covers over her head and her voice was muffled when she talked. No, I don't want to go back. I want to stay here forever. Sam yanked the covers back and peered across her perfectly proportioned smooth body. You're talking me into it. We could stay here. You could freelance, and I could find a position. It can be arranged, Nina. She touched his nose. Never mind. I'll call Domingo's. Reserve that table we like along the river. Say, around six? Sounds good to me. He moved to the door, but held the knob. Remember one thing. What's that? I'm not done with you yet. He pointed at her. She rose naked to her knees and threw the pillow across the hotel room, but he managed to scoot out the door. 
He walked down the corridor to the window overlooking the St. John's River. The sunlight against the steel clouds was extraordinary. He smiled and moved downstairs. The vacation had surpassed their expectations. Both of them were pushed to the edge when they left Marquette. His photography business was not doing well last winter, which was not helpful to Nina at home with the baby. The tiny studio on Front Street was lacking in customers, probably due to his own foibles. He liked shooting landscapes, not people. Without the money from her aging parents, they never would have taken the vacation. Sam adjusted his camera strap as he walked into the lobby. He again toyed with the idea of moving down here. Nina would update her teaching credentials, but her recommendations were strong. Maybe they could settle along the beach and he could do some more outdoor shooting like today and not face the cold, harsh winter. He pushed open the glass doors, squeezed behind some of the bellhops moving suitcases into the lobby, and stepped into the outside humid air. His green sob was parked below the third-floor room. The bike rack was still attached. He thought for a second about taking the bike out of hotel storage, but instead unlocked the sob and decided to drive. The hotel was not far from the shore or the river. Before he headed back to the city itself and photographed the river and the bridge, he wanted more pictures of the beach. He pulled onto the highway but quickly shifted and turned down to the shore. A bright blue ocean horizon was neatly drawn between the fluffy green fauna. He composed the photographs in his mind as he moved along. Iowa had nothing like this white sandy beach. Nina's father once owned a small speedboat they used on the lake, sometimes water skiing away from the rough shore. He parked the sob and his bare feet sizzled on the asphalt until the soft sand smoothed his skin. Being able to sink his feet into these sands whenever he wished was an enticing prospect. He shot more pictures of gulls along the steady surf. But the dunes intrigued him too. He sat for a moment in the high grass as he thought of Nina's engaging smile. They were married six years and she was still his best friend. He had close friends, old and new, but Nina was his confidant, and he trusted her judgment. As he moved back to the Saab, he checked his watch. In three hours, he and Nina would be sitting in the twilight at the small candle-lit cafe table overlooking the river. Again, he dreamed about living down here. Having the city adjacent to the natural beauty would allow them to enjoy a more cosmopolitan atmosphere than Marquette, as well as the historical sites and the natural shoreline beauty. A photography studio would flourish in the area with a larger population and tourists. The bridge was up ahead. It was not the typical steel-girded stark structure, but had spires on each section, detailed with the light poles hovering over the graceful span. He took out the wrinkled postcard from decades past. Hues were colored, giving the card an antique appearance. Sam turned onto the river road shoulder, shut off the car, and stepped outside. Walking into the late afternoon sunshine along the riverbank, he smelled the salt sea air as he moved slowly down the bank. He changed lenses, lining up the city, and he clicked the shutter several times. When he returned to his studio on Front Street, he would sort through the hundreds of shots and place the best ones in the window. Maybe the townspeople would appreciate a faraway place. St. Augustine is one of my most favorite places. The Bridge of Lions, adorned with a copy of the Medici lion statues located in Florence, Italy. The bridge spans the intercoastal waterway. It is a bascule bridge or a drawbridge. 
I had never seen anything like it. And the Bridge of Lions is paramount for breakdown security in the Green Haze Project. Call it arrogance, call it false security. Sam and Nina are caught up in the disaster. Next week's episode I will entitle On the Run. I'm Robert P. Fitton and I'll see you then. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.
chapter 7.